Hello and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement. My name is Julian Guderlei. I am committed to a world that allows all people of all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And in today's episode, my guest is Mark O'Brien. Welcome, Mark. Happy to be here. Yeah, Mark is the co-founder of The Determined, a creative studio for climate resilient world. He's also the co-founder of Climate Designers, a hub for designers and creative professionals from all industries, really, committed to using their creative skills to take climate action. And when not running his studio, you can find him teaching at California College of the Arts in San Francisco as a senior adjunct faculty. So with these words, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to dive in. Yeah, I love what you're doing in the world, and I really... Um, I think it's so important to create these hubs or gravity spots where other people can find each other and find, you know, themselves and their creative expression. Um, I, you know, this, this is one of the core themes across all of the episodes with all the different categories of people I interview is apply yourself. When you express your own creative, you know, uh, juice, your own creative art, your own creative um, way of living, that's really when the world comes alive. Yeah, totally. And and that's something that I strive to encourage when I meet uh, people. And more specifically, as you mentioned, uh, me being a design instructor at a design school, I, I definitely encourage my students to do that. You know, they're in a, at a point in their lives where they're learning all these skills and they're gaining these talents and this exposure to the creative industry. And if I can just play a small role in exposing them to where they can apply those talents, and in this case, you know, towards our climate crisis, then then I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Mm, yeah, you're mentioning it. We recently met um, when, you know, I'm part of the first cohort of the Design Science Studio with the Buckminster Fuller Institute, and uh, you're running the Climate Designers, and we met when those two hubs kind of met each other. Um, very, very curious. So I, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about, you know, the story behind Climate Designers, how you started it, and, and just yeah, sharing with everyone listening, what inspired you to say, this needs to happen? Yeah, yet another example of me wanting to, to expose more people to, to do this kind of work. Um, yeah, kind of the origin story of climate designers, it's kind of an interesting one. Uh, my business partner, Sarah, and I, we've been working uh, uh, under the studio, under our studio, The Determined, for a few years. And we kind of started to get known as the climate designer folks, right? And a lot of my design friends who are working in various design industries uh, would always kind of pin me as the climate designer guy. And one day I started to bring that up to Sarah and we started to think, hmm, are we the only climate designers out there? There has to be other people out there. And surely, obviously there were. And we just kind of snowballed into more ideas around, hmm, is there something there to that? Is Could we create something through the studio that can uh, not only highlight the work of us and our friends who are working on climate, but to encourage other designers from all industries, all walks of life to focus their talents towards climate. And so we had this idea end of summer, early fall of 2019. 
And we said, hey, let's just try it. And the idea was to just put a little landing page up. Uh, we bought a, a domain name, put together a Squarespace website. We don't. We even just bought the month, you know, not even the year long package, but just the one month uh, package, just because we didn't know if this idea was going to be sticky or not, right? And we just put it out there. We put a few of our friends up on there, and it was just a landing page with an email sign up box. And it was, I think, the call to action was, you know you know, sign up to get notified when we launch, just thinking like, we don't know if this is going to work or not. And uh, sure enough, within that first month, we got a ton of email subscribers and we we're like, okay, I think we're onto something. And so from that one little landing page to this full-blown site that you see now, uh, it's definitely evolved over the last, uh, you know, 12, uh, 14 months now. Yeah, that's exciting that you started literally with like the month-to-month -month subscription. I, I think this is something a lot of people are missing when, you know, they're creating something new, they're creating something big, or they're wanting to like bring this vision into reality is just start really simple and mm -hmm. just see what the response is. Totally. And that's, that's our philosophy when it comes to not only our work, but even uh, what we teach our clients, you know, we all have these big visions, big dreams, big goals, which are great. Don't get me wrong. But uh, we feel like a lot of people just kind of uh, especially our clients, they kind of, they, they stay in the studio, quote unquote, and just, they just want to make sure they have the perfect roadmap. They want to make sure they have the perfect everything before they launch. And that can take a lot of time and energy and resources. But if you don't test it out, if you don't put it in the hands of users in the hands of the people that you want to, you know, talk to, uh, and then find what's not working and then iterate to make it even better. If you don't do any of that and you just launch with this big bang, and then you find out that, no one wants it, or if it's it's not the right thing, then you've wasted all that time, money, energy, and so we uh, we definitely subscribe to the philosophy of small bets. And so the the one month landing page with climate designers was that small bet, and then it paid off. And then we're still incorporating a lot of small bets in the in the initiative, but uh, it's just a you know as a designer, I guess it's just another way of practicing just prototyping. You know, we're just prototyping ideas and concepts and, and in this case, a community. Yeah, I think in, in regards to, you know, design process and also like, you know, kind of tech sprints and building technology, the prototyping has become somewhat of more normal. I think what I've noticed a lot over the last years is people with really big visions having trouble to prototype the smallest version of it, just because just the vision is so big. And then everyone gets excited about how big this vision is for our planet and for communities and for schools we're building and programs and whatever. But really the wisdom that I also had to learn over the last you know, decade and more is one step at a time is never too difficult. And when you keep doing that one step at a time, all the other pieces will eventually turn into the big vision rather than trying to implement the big vision and making it so just because you really think that's that's what has to happen. Yeah, and even the the one step at a time approach allows you to invite new things that you didn't even think of in planning that big vision that might actually make the the, the big vision even better. And it might even like shift you to a, a new uh, path that actually might be better down the road. And so I think there's nothing wrong with it, um, with that approach. Uh, yes, you know, when we are talking about climate, we are talking about this thing that we have no control over uh, in a sense of time. And so there is a little bit of sense of urgency, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, I think nonetheless, I think this is definitely a, 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 a safer, approach as opposed to just putting all of our energy into one thing and then we find out that it doesn't work. 
So, um, so yeah, I, I think the one step at a time approach is definitely what we do um, with every intention that that one step will be the most impactful for that one step. And then we learn and then we iterate and then we move on from there. Yeah, you, you were just you were just saying it when you pointed at like climate at large is, you know, such a big topic. And I find it really interesting because I've stayed away from the word climate um, just because I know it, it carries such deep associations. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I often say the great pollution or like the times we're in uh, and you just went straight with it, which I think is, you know, honorable in many ways. So in your own in your own way of looking at, at the situation in the world, like what do you reckon is most required in today's world for you know, us to, to really have a positive impact on, on, on the people around us, on the planet itself and, and life in general. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to get to this, but I want to mention something that you made me think of in just your last comment. Uh, yeah. I mentioned climate as kind of shorthand, you know, when, when we are, when I'm talking to other people. Uh, but here's the thing. Um, if you approach it this way, uh, you know, hey, would who would you want, you know, cleaner air? Would you want uh, cleaner water? When you would you want more jobs, more well-paying jobs? When you when you talk about all the benefits that we can envision uh, when we address our climate, you can talk about climate without even mentioning that word. Totally. So who, so who would be against any of that? And so that's something that I've actually been trying to. Uh, put into my work with my clients and, and find other opportunities to talk about it so that because again climate is is a is it is a loaded word and unfortunately we've also made it very um politicized and very you know kind of confrontational at times and so you know would you be able to approach anyone on the planet with that different perspective around cleaner job or uh, cleaner air um, better jobs, things like that. Who would who would be against that? And then while you're addressing all that, you will no doubt address the climate crisis. Um, but to go back to your original question, yeah, I think it it's for me. It's just encouraging people to just be more aware of how they're living on the planet and how they interact with one another and the planet itself, and that with just simple changes to your lifestyle, simple changes in how you view the world and how you view other people, especially those who might not look like you and, and come from the same place as you. Um, I think that's maybe an approach that we can all take to, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, technological approaches or ecological approaches when it comes to solving a climate crisis. It's just a human approach. And I think, I think, I'm trying to get my thoughts together. I think us waking up and realizing that the way that we've been living for many, many years, centuries now, hasn't really been the best. <laughs> Let's just call it out. And once we own that and acknowledge that, then we can have a larger conversation about, okay, we've recognized what we've done hasn't been very... Uh, hasn't been very good to, to, use simple uh, yeah. to use simple language, right? It hasn't been good for a lot of people and the planet. And so let's just own that. And then using our, our, our smarts, let's figure out 
how to address it. And I think with all the research that we have, all the technology, all the, all the things that we've been able to acquire and learn over the last few decades, let's, let's supply some of that stuff. We're sitting right on it. I mean, the solution is in front of us, I think. And yeah, I feel like we, with you on that. and I feel like, honestly, we are our own worst enemy. We are, we get in our own way. And so how do we get out of our own way? And I think having these hard conversations, recognizing our faults, recognizing our um, history, I think that's one, I mean, talk about your, you know, what we just talked about earlier, talking about uh, uh, taking one step at a time. I think that's the first step that we should take, that we have mm -hmm. to take. Yeah, I think reconciling the past is, is, is a very obvious, you know, um, necessity in, in human culture. And what I hear you say, Mark, is that there's, there's like a kind of like an illusion how we look at the past that you know we've we've done all the right things and now why are we here and that's the illusion because really we mm -hmm. haven't necessarily done the right things we we've done a bunch of things that we've normalized and it's very possible for us to to say okay how would we as a species learn even better from the past mistakes and how do we take into account that you know we came out of an industrialized revolution that ultimately you know kind of put humans equal to machines and even a Newtonian worldview that puts the human body equal to machines rather than, you know, understanding that everything is energy. Um, not just because, you know, the Albert Einstein quote or the Nikola Tesla quote is, is, is fancy to share, but what does that actually mean in the way we live, in the way we, you know, grow food, in the way we, you know, build supermarkets or ultimately in the way we design every single step of life. And for me, what comes up a lot is I don't need to have the answer to trust that that's the pathway forward. Mm. How does that process of trust look for you? Like, like maybe let me start there. Like, how do you personal experience, personally experience trust? Mm. You know, something my dad taught me when I was a kid is um, trust is earned and not given. Uh, and there's a story when I was a teenager, I won't get into it. It's a, it's a long story, but there's a, something happened to where I lost my dad's trust and it was a stupid teenager type thing that I did. And it really affected me. And I had to earn that trust back with my dad. And ever since then, that was a huge life learning opportunity for me. And ever since then, uh, I've, I've definitely have that top of mind when I, uh, not only meet new people, but also when I, when I, interact with people, my loved ones, my friends. Um, and so on the topic of trust, yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, you know, us talking at the end of 2020, we've seen a crazy year. Um, and I think trust is, and at least in the US is a, is a conversation that we all need to have on in a national, at a national level, where I think, unfortunately, we've lost a lot of trust in institutions and, and, uh, and, 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 perhaps people. Um, and so I, I think, again, having these hard conversations early on about trust that was either broken or trust that wasn't even really there to begin with. And this illusion of having trust in certain people or industries, when if you pull back the curtain, you realize actually, wait, there was really, that wasn't really trust to begin with. It was this, this facade, right? Um, I want to bring up something you mentioned earlier about uh, how some people think that we've done things the right way. And, and I feel like, sure, you know, to an extent, but perhaps they just kind of live in that bubble, their own bubble. And that bubble can be small or big, but I'm not sure if their bubble really 
fits the whole world inside of that bubble and and perhaps more people need to be exposed to other ways of living, other cultures, other viewpoints, so that perhaps they, they can build that trust with going beyond their known boundaries, going beyond their, their own world, their own viewpoints, so that they can, yeah, uh, build trust with, with the unknown. And uh, perhaps that's, again, one way of starting that conversation. Yeah, I like, I like that way to start that conversation because that's how my life experience, you know, kind of brought me into where I am today. It's just this consistent exposure to other cultures and not just traveling as a visitor with a photo camera, but like really living in places just shows you that, you know, everything has a cultural context. And so mm -hmm. certain things are normal on place A and are very much not normal in place B. And so once you've gone through a few of those iterations, it gets really obvious that you could either choose to judge all other cultures but yours, or you can find the silver lining and the connection and the, the humor and the joy of the human experience on the planet. And so once you go there, then, you know, let's even say um, capitalism for profit's sake of no matter what consequence suddenly becomes like such a, such a flat option. And it's, it's mm -hmm. almost um, mind boggling how we've held on to that um, rather than taking it as what it is, which was a stepping stone in our evolution, and then looking and craving what is that next step in the evolution, you know, I think um, kind of got me onto like a ranting thought here, but there is a difference between the need for a revolution, especially in a historic context, like overthrowing kings or people in power, and just an evolutionary process that we you know, very much could surrender into as a species, as um, regions, as cultures, as even as nations and say, look, the process of evolution is not a book written by Charles Darwin. The process of evolution is what we live. And um, so everything, including our systems, including our capital structures, they require a consistent open heart, open mind and willingness to, to evolve. Exactly. I view everything as a prototype. Uh, I feel as if everything has been invented in our world, right? Uh, take, for example, the internet. You know, the internet hasn't always been around. Someone or a group of people invented it. Uh, the idea of restaurants, the idea of banks, the idea of schools, um, and of course, objects, you know, the your iPhone, uh, cars, at some point, someone or groups of people came together and invented something, uh, systems, objects, etc. Um, and I feel like if you were to take that approach and, and, and apply it to, especially as I mentioned, you know, us chatting at the end of 2020, if you were to take that approach and view it, view everything that's been going on, especially this past year through that lens, then wow, like wouldn't that encourage you to wouldn't that excite you to know that okay there's a lot of shitty things out there right now there's a lot of systems in place that have caused destruction and and discrimination and all these things well why can't we invent new ways of living why can't we, we invent new systems so that we don't continue down this road um I, I just think it's it's a it's a beautiful perspective that 
more people perhaps should adopt and apply to their own work, whether it's in design, whether it's in climate, whether it's in anything in life and even your personal life too. If you view everything as a prototype, you know, you view your relationship with your loved ones. If you view uh, even yourself as a prototype, right? We evolve as human beings. We become curious with new things that we get exposed to and we, and we get disinterested in, in things that we've been interested in for years. You know, there's some hobbies that I've kind of left behind and that's okay. There's new hobbies that I'm doing now and there's going to be new hobbies down the road that I have no idea what they are, but I know that they're out there. And I think with that growth mindset, with that beginner's mindset, it's a, it's a really great perspective to view the world and, and then I take all of that and then apply it to the work that I'm doing. And so when I talk about climate, when I talk about when I talk about uh, inventing you know different approaches and solutions with our clients, I think it just it 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 makes working on this big gnarly challenge a bit more fun and approachable. Um, as opposed to this narrative of this doom and gloom, we're all screwed. Why don't we talk about it through more of a doom and bloom perspective where we can take this crisis and like, okay, this is in front of us. We can't turn away from it. We can't flip a switch. It can't, it's not going to go away anytime soon. So let's look at this with this perspective and see what we can do with it. Yeah. You know, this really unites us, this, this idea that there has been a doom and gloom narrative around, you know, anything planetary, climate related, um, very much from, you know, the, the governing institutions and the body of science, which I don't even want to criticize it, just like the pathway of the past. We don't need to necessarily criticize it to, to stay open for, for different ways and realize that some other ways might be even more effective. And so I think a missing piece in this conversation, which I'm really enjoying, you know, is, um, is the skill of resilience and the ability to, you know, the true skill of leadership, which is that when things are uncomfortable, you don't just look the other way, but you, you're able to look at something that's uncomfortable or it's something that's challenging and you build resilience through facing it. How would you say that relates to the design process and, you know, just the, the, the way of the way of life that, that you live and, and walk? Yeah, yeah, I think the designers listening out there will agree with what I'm about to say. Um, you know, the, the, the different versions of whatever it is that we're designing, whether it's logos, websites, posters, etc. Um, nine times out of 10, your first few iterations are going to suck. <laughs> let's just call it out and let's just own that and be okay with that. Um, I think the most important thing is just to get ideas out there into the world. And then to show those ideas to the people that you're designing for, uh, and then take those take feedback, take the feedback that they that they're offering to then make those ideas even better, make those iterations, do a second round of them, and then iterate again, and then show them again, and just the cycle of back and forth, back and forth. Because if you if you are truly co-creating, co-designing solutions with those on the ground, then I think that's that's how you actually. Uh, move forward right and so uh i just think for me it just becomes a no-brainer to, to to do that to allow that to be part of the process and to be uncomfortable with the fact that your first few iterations are going to suck and that uh you shouldn't feel embarrassed you shouldn't feel as if it's a it's a it's questioning your creative talents it's just you got to get it out there um and then another thing to think about too is is 
you know, also designers tend to lock down on their first idea. They, they come up with that first initial idea and they just grab onto it thinking that that's the one and only best idea ever. And sure, that might be the case, but you're not, ex you're not allowing yourself to explore all these other alternative ideas. You're not allowing yourself to explore more unique solutions. And, um, and so if we were to allow ourselves to at least get that first idea out there and then, you know, come up with methods and processes, there's a whole creative process that I work under called the th uh, thinking wrong, which allows that to really, uh, that, which allows that to, to make it easier for, for designers, myself included, to come up with those more crazy out there, wild solutions, so that you can then find something, and maybe it's even a combination of a handful of ideas, and you kind of Frankenstein it together, and then that's it. Um, it's not just that first idea. So yeah, I, I just think, you know, again, that prototyping approach um, is so key for designers. Um, and then so I always try to you know, think about how can non-designers approach this? How can non-designers uh, uh, bring this into their into their day-to-day -day life? Um, you know, what would be the non-design, more basic version of that? Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoy that design perspective, which ultimately, you know, to a degree, everyone is a designer of their own experience and their own experience within um, whichever job, whichever family constellation, whichever uh, city or country or place we live in. I want to change um, the, the rhythm of this conversation a little bit and, and you know, get to know you better, Mark. And so, um, you know, if you were to mention three things in your life, things or circumstances, could, could be people too, that you wouldn't want to miss, that really made an impact on your life, um, what would that be? Ooh, good question. When I was in uh, seventh grade, the coolest kid in my class, Ricky Miller, uh, forgot his lunch money one day. And we were in history class together. And because of alphabetical order from our last names, he sat right in front of me. So throughout the class, I got to know him a little bit. I was still a little nervous around him because he was like the cool kid, you know. And one day he turned around and said, hey, I forgot my lunch money. Can you give me your lunch money? I got this mixtape. I'll trade it you know, for your lunch money. And I was like thinking if Ricky Miller's giving me his, his tape, the music that he listens to, I know it's automatically cool and I want to listen to it. <laughs> and so I went hungry that day. And uh, when I got home, I popped that tape in my, uh, in my little cassette player and played it. And it was just full of punk rock songs. Right. And that was my first exposure to punk. I was, you know, 13, I think 14, something like that. And, uh, and that just opened the doors to this whole ethos of punk and the DIY uh, movement and just questioning authority and fighting for causes you believe in. And, you know, I'm not a musician. Uh, I, I wish I was. I, I played the guitar for a little bit when I was a kid, but never really stuck with it, unfortunately. But, you know, for me, I use design and my skills as as if I was a musician on stage singing to you know, a crowd of people. And so I incorporate all of that punk rock ethos into the work that I do, right? Again, fighting for causes you believe in, questioning authority, the whole DIY movement. You know, the whole climate designer stuff in a sense is that DIY approach, right? We just did it, we did it for a month and then we figured out if it was gonna work or not. Um, 
I think a few people that stood out for me uh, over the course of, of my, my life, you know, my dad and mom are amazing people. They taught me a lot of different things, very uh, different things from each other, but um, as a combination really helped me, um, really shaped me into the person I am today. My dad taught a lot, uh, taught me a lot about ethics and, and work ethics and um, being a good person and following through and keeping your word and all that stuff. My mom taught me to, to, to be, you know, nice to people and be friendly to people and, you know, just, just approach people with a warm heart. Uh, there's a, a handful of, of amazing instructors I went to design school with, John Monowski, Rob Carter, Sandy Wheeler, that, that just exposed me to what design can do to go beyond the printed page or the printed poster and to, to use design in a way that can really create positive change in the world. And another person, John Bielenberg, uh, who founded Project M, who created the Think Wrong process that I mentioned earlier, um, I, I got to meet him um, right when I graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University, and and we're good friends now, mentor of mine, colleague of mine, and and his whole approach and just the way of, of just his creative thinking really exposed me to like open up the doors even more in terms of applying my creative talents to uh, to create positive change. Um, I, I think mostly it's been people. I've been so fortunate to just meet amazing people along the way that I just value those relationships. And I've been fortunate enough to, to befriend people that in design school I read about in books. And now they're my friends, you know, and, and I value collaboration. I value... Uh, the skills that I don't possess, but my friends do, and how can we work together to achieve a larger thing? Um, yeah, and then I, one last thing. Um, I, I, when I, I went back to school later in life to get a second degree, I got a BFA in graphic design. I graduated in 2008. And if you all remember, the, the recession happened during that time. It was not a good time to graduate. <laughs> and so, again, just kind of strapping, what, what's the phrase, you know, strapping myself up on my bootstraps or whatever that is. Um, I just went out and just did it. I, I found projects, I found opportunities. That's when I met John Bielenberg. And for the first three years from around 2008 to 2011-ish or so, uh, I was nomadic. I lived out of two bags and I had a bike and a laptop and I moved all over the US and a little bit around uh, Europe. Uh, and and I just took on projects. I built my portfolio under the social impact, social innovation umbrella. And that allowed me to not only see mostly the US, but to meet so many different people with so many different perspectives, going back to uh, some of our earlier conversations around perspectives and the ability to be able to connect and empathize and just be around people as opposed to helicoptering in as a designer and saying, hey, I'm a designer for social good. I'm gonna fix everything and then just you know leave, right? To put, but to really invest in, in these towns and places that I lived over the course of three or so years. And you know, I didn't spend a whole lot of time there, but the time that I did spend there, you know, two months here, six months there, I definitely invested in those communities. And it taught me a lot about just you know, really uh, paying attention to what other people have to say and what they're going through. And, and if, if I felt compelled to, to use my creative talents, not to say that I wanted to right off the bat, sometimes I didn't, sometimes I didn't do projects at all during, you know, when I was living in some of these places, but nonetheless, just exposing myself to, 
to to the U.S. specifically. Uh, it's a beautiful beautiful country, uh, very different in lots of different places, lots of different regions, and um, and so yeah, I, I have to say I think it's mostly been people that have been really uh, instrumental in setting me on this path. And uh, I feel fortunate to have a, an amazing support network. I have many mentors. I've had many mentors in my day. And, uh, and then again, with climate designers and even me teaching, I feel as if I want to turn around and provide support for others who want to do the same. And so I just want to kind of pay it forward to other people, whether they're my age, whether they're students. Um, I just feel like we need to support one another to, to really have all of us step up and and do the work that we need to do. Yeah, I think you're really, really on the mark there. Like we get to support each other so that more of our gifts get to shine. And so my follow-up question on that is in your own words, right? Um, can be a short or a long answer, however it's coming through right now in this moment. What do you reckon purpose is and how would you describe it? Ooh, the purpose word. <laughs> um, I, I look at purpose uh, through the lens of personal interest. Uh, where, where do you find your energy? And that could look different for many, many people. Uh, it could be you know everything from a particular industry or it could be a, a thing you do on the side, uh, baking or playing music. Uh, where you find your energy is, I f is, is where I think finding your purpose or at least a start to find your purpose. And then if you are able to, can you apply your skills and other aspects of your life towards that? Um, so again, speaking through the lens of a designer, uh, if I, 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 one of the projects I, I have with my students is uh, with my climate designers class, uh, we start the semester with a personal interest outside of climate, outside of design. They come back to me with, uh, with uh, oh, I'm really into baking. I love surfing. I love music. I'm like, okay, well then how is climate affecting that interest? And then they start to think, oh, wow, okay. Well then if that's the case, I'm gonna look at this very differently now. And then from there, they can think about, hmm, like if this is, if I have a strong enough uh, interest in this, could I apply my skills to make it to where I can become, uh, where I can create more of a, where I, can, where I can show up more to this to this interest. And perhaps by doing that, maybe that's that's where they'll find their passion. I'm not saying that a personal interest is like an automatic go-to for passion. I think it's a it's an op, it's an opportunity to explore that. Um, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but at least that's how I view it, you know, attaching your personal interest, looking towards applying some sort of skill towards your personal interest and then seeing where it goes from there. Yeah, beautiful answer. Thank you so much. I'm going to let that, that one just sink in and go to the next question that is related if you want to make them related. Um, and that's about education and the education system at large. And so mm -hmm. um, I would, you know, contextualize it that I think it, it's pretty obvious that, you know, um, as we said earlier in this conversation, everything really is in an evolutionary process. And so the education system has a lot of really old components that aren't really serving lifelong learners at this part and at this point. And so Mark, in your own words, if you alone or with a group of experts or designers could change the education system, what would you do? Oh, how long do you have on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh man. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we are living in this archaic, uh, educational system that has, that was at one point invented back when we needed this kind of system. Right. And I think when it, was created, it worked for the time being, but now we've evolved as, as people, we've evolved as human beings, as with, with all these different technologies and, and society has evolved around us as well. And I think this is definitely an opportunity for us to reinvent the educational system. You know, I, 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 I yeah, I mean, you look at examples of like Montessori style uh, classrooms and other types of alternative uh, non-traditional classroom setups as examples of what we could be doing um, as another iteration or another version of it. Uh, I feel like we, at least in the US, need to invest more in our, if, if we're gonna keep our current education system, sure, fine if we have to, but we need to invest a lot more into it. And specifically, we need to invest money and resources. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but unfortunately a lot of K-12 school systems now are having a hard time finding teachers. Uh, no one wants to be a teacher because it doesn't pay well and there's other jobs out there that do. And so you have a lot of teachers who are retiring and not a whole lot of teachers following up through that, right? And so how do we make teaching the most celebrated profession in the country, in the world? Um, another idea would be to have more collaboration between um, departments, especially in, in college. Uh, how do we integrate more topics with one another as opposed to keeping them in silos? Um, how do we incorporate more uh, group projects so that students can learn to work together early on as opposed to, you know, every so often, you know, you get a group project here and there. Um, how do we even how do we even teach collaboration? That's something that I wish more schools, especially high ed, would put more energy towards. We just throw kids in a group and say, okay, everyone work together. And then you have all this like internal strife within these groups because they don't know how to collaborate. And so could we even take a class on collaboration? Um, could we teach time management? Could we teach project management? Could we teach um, how to handle stress? Can we teach uh, mindfulness early on? Because if we're asking students from all ages to learn a lot of this stuff, um, equipping them with the methods and, and techniques that will help them not stress out, not burn out, I think that would be really beneficial. Um, and then also too, like we also might need to question how we teach and, and, and this whole you know study, study, study to then apply it to a test like we have Google in our pockets now. We can easily search for stuff now. And so is, is that the best approach? This archaic, everyone study the first three chapters and we'll get, you know, you'll apply it to a, a test and then we'll move on. Or is it more um, to where people can apply what they've learned and, and collaborate, share knowledge, look it up, and then come up with a different way of applying that to to make sure that the students are in fact learning, but learning in a very different way. Um, you know, I'm not an education expert. I've just been teaching for a while and in high ed specifically, but also K-12 is something that I do think about and, 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 and feel as if putting more energy in those systems um, can really address a lot of core problems that we're facing. Um, it just makes sense, <laughs> you know? I mean, we're, we're, we're teaching the next generation of leaders 
wouldn't that be an amazing investment to, to put money and resources and, and, and infrastructure in place to, so that when they do come of age, 18, 19, 20, et cetera, that they are at least on a good path. And I'm not saying that when you graduate college, typically you're what, 21 or so. I'm not saying that you have to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. Cause we all know that that's not the case. Um, could we also continue education or at least the idea that continuing education even post-college is actually normal and actually encouraged and treat life more as an ongoing class, <laughs> you know, like just, totally. I, I tell my students just because they, they get a degree and walk across that stage doesn't mean that they're done learning. It, it means that they've just checked off this box and then they have to learn other stuff. They have to keep learning other things to stay relevant, to stay on top of, of, of the industry, to learn new skills. Um, so how do we normalize lifelong learning as opposed to what you do the first two decades of your life? Boom. I love that, that big question. You brought up a lot of really good questions. Um, definitely want to listen back to and let these all sink in. So, you know, our, our internal inquiry can, can help us, um, well, for our own life, but then also for what we build as a collective. I want to come full circle and kind of with our, you know, um, planetary and climate related conversation. And so I have two more questions for you today, Mark. And um, the first one is kind of a, it's just a point of frustration that's just turned into inquiry for me. And that is about trash and garbage. And so I'm, I'm curious to understand what you think of this big picture of trash that is going on on the planet. Um, maybe even especially, especially through a design lens, because it seems to me that we're, we're not seeing the full picture there. Yeah, yeah. And I love your phrase, the great pollution. I might, I might steal that. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, designers, we make stuff. Let's, let's just acknowledge that. So going back to just straight up acknowledging how we live in the world and, and, and our footprint in the world, you know, let's acknowledge the fact that designers create, most designers create things that have been created by extracting precious resources and putting them through various processes and systems to produce a thing. That thing is then consumed by whoever it's consumed by. And then that person discards that at some point, um, whether it's because, whether it's because the, the object that they can, that they bought, uh, it broke or perhaps maybe they can't upgrade it, they can't fix it themselves, uh, or maybe there's a new shiny object that came out six months later and they wanna get that one and then they dis discard the, the previous thing. Um, that whole system right there definitely needs to be um, questioned. You know, the idea of perceived obsolescence and planned obsolescence is something that I don't think a lot of designers really address or even know about. Um, and so as designers, we need to start asking these big questions before we even start a project. Uh, you know, does this thing even need to exist? You know, if a, a new client comes up and says, hey, we need, we need this new thing, this new object, a designer should even just straight up ask, do we? <laughs> do we need that thing? Um, and so, okay, so let's just say, okay, yes, we do. Okay, so then you know, moving forward, then asking the most appropriate questions to make sure that how they're developing the the shirt or the the device or the object, whatever that might be, 
making sure that the materials that are being used and how they're being um, um, extracted in the world um, or even just created is that the most is that the best way of doing it and if it is great if it isn't then let's let's figure out alternatives and then how do we actually design it and then how do we even plan for uh post consumption um and That's so I, I, yeah and, and i do feel like more and more designers are stepping up and and questioning these things which is great um, I love what companies like Patagonia is doing, where they have the whole Warnware uh, initiative, right? Where they're encouraging people to send their clothes back to them to repair, as opposed to giving them away to a to a thrift store, which is good too, and then buying a new piece of, of clothing. Um, and then even there's this new initiative from Patagonia where they're actually taking bits and pieces of our, um, various clothes, if they're similar, various pieces of clothes, and then actually Frankensteining them together to make a new object, which is, I think, kind of cool. So at least in the fashion world, you're seeing more and more companies uh, and, and designers waking up and, and, and acknowledging this. But yeah, designers make make stuff we make stuff and we in that in in that sense we make waste um will we ever live in a world where we don't have waste i th i think we can i think you know i get really excited when i s i'm really a big geek when it comes to alternative materials like bamboo and hemp and algae and mushrooms and things like that like i i, I do feel we're at this very beginning stage of of, of figuring out all these alternative materials that can one day hopefully replace a lot of these more um, destructive extractive materials. And so we can still have the same objects. Don't get me wrong. We don't have to change our lifestyle. We can just create objects that still achieve the goal, whether it's sipping, you know, in this case, my mushroom coffee out of the smug um, or drive a, a car to point A to point B or to do whatever, but at least perhaps down the road, those things can be created that have a little to no footprint on the planet, both in terms of um, pre-production and post-production. So, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think the, this idea of, of trash is really interesting and, and then moving beyond just designers, what about the everyday person? You know, how do they view the objects that they buy? you know, the, these like 99 cent stores, these single use plastic items or single use items in general, like how do we move away? How do we move beyond that idea of, oh, I'll just take this one thing for this one use and then just discard it. Um, so I think that, I, I feel like that is the bigger issue because, you know, as designers, we can, we can do all of our work in designing better objects, better, better products, but then the, the everyday person, the, the customers that they're, or the users, the audience that they're, uh, these objects are going to be interacted, interacting with, how do you change behavior? How do you change people's mindset when it comes to, you know, spending an extra dollar or two on a more well-designed, higher quality, better for the planet thing versus that 99 cent option? That's really hard. That's really hard. It's a process, that's for sure, right? And I think we, we got to acknowledge where we are in the timeline of that process as well like something i you know keep repeating is in my personal opinion we're not here to leave no footprint so the idea of zero footprint is almost nonsensical because by definition we are a species with a very high impact 
right? So what that means is we have to learn how to leave a graceful footprint, one that is in balance, in harmony with nature and with the intelligence of nature. Now, when we talk about biophilic uh, tech, like, you know, like mushroom or mycelium or algae um, derivatives that then create you know, the, the substance for plastics um, rather than, you know, yeah, oil-based plastics. Now, suddenly, as you said, our lifestyle doesn't necessarily have to change, but that transition is one of the very vital ones um, to, to upgrade all of our production elements. And then, you know, the trend that we're seeing right now with big industry, and I think you mentioned Patagonia is a, a wonderful example of a, a trailblazer and pioneer, right? Someone who has set the bar really high for others. But then you look at the giants like the Coca-Colas, the Nestle's, the um, MasterCards, you name them, in, across all industries. And so now we're starting to see a trend. Actually, just this morning, I saw and shared a, um, um, a statement by Nestle about its policies for the next 20, 30 years. And trust me, like, uh, just like everyone else, Nestle for me was on the like, <laughs> don't, not doing too much good uh, list, right? But the trend is clear. There is conscious humans running those companies. And so they're looking, how do we actually adapt this capitalistic structure and way of thinking from which we come from, how do we adapt this going forward into a way that really understands our larger impact and footprint? Not so we leave no footprint, but so that our footprint is exemplary, right? And our footprint is um, just a part of what happens on planet Earth. And, and I think, you know, we, we can be really critical about this, which sometimes can be helpful. But overall, evolution, we said this in this episode a few times, is a process. And so our privilege as a species right now, not just as individuals, is we're born into that process. We are watching and witnessing and designing this process. And, you know, when I was born in the late 80s, a lot of what's normal now was totally futuristic. And so I'm very sure that in 20, 30, 40 years, we'll have solved most of the challenges of today with ingenious or simple um, solutions. But we need to actually go through it and, uh, as you said a few times, like acknowledge what we're doing and how we operate, uh, build that resilience and change it. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, an example like Nestle. You know, as much as we as individuals can do our part, I really do feel like we need to go upstream and we need to put a lot more pressure on these companies and industries and sectors to do more. I feel as if, I mean, you know, Coca-Cola is a great example. I mean, more or less, they they have been pushing the the recycle program. It was, you know, in Exxon, I believe, or Shell, one of the oil companies of decades ago, they more or less created the whole reduce, reuse, recycle because they wanted to put the ownership on individuals and not them. Have the individuals clean up our, our plastic waste, not us. And so I'm calling bullshit on that. And I want us to to really, like, say no, no more, and then go upstream and put pressure on these companies to demand that they do better. And totally. I think and I think with Patagonia, they might not be as big as some of these larger conglomerates, but at least it's the start of a conversation. And can you imagine all the other Patagonias in the world currently and in the future that are gonna go down and follow Patagonia's path as, as opposed to the, the path that some of these larger companies have, have forged themselves that have uh, that have obviously, you know, caused the destruction and, and, and put us in the situation that we're in today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's, for the last question, zoom out a little bit from the situation of today. And I want to hear, Mark, I want to hear your dream, your, your inner 
uh, vision for this planet if we were to zoom out for even just seven generations into the future and taking this seven generational way of thinking and feeling into account so like what's your dream for us to be you know good ancestors for these future generations mm, yeah that's a that's a big one uh i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go for it i'm just gonna riff off the top of my head <laughs> uh you know uh no borders um you know everyone has a has an equal voice uh we we support um anyone and everyone with whatever the whatever work that they want to do we uh you know we make sure everyone has a, has shelter has food i mean getting there is going to be is going to be tough but yes i do and 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 it's going to get worse before it gets better but i think if we were to think seven generations out i feel like those who are there you know seven generations from now yeah i, th I think they're they're going to be smart enough to create new systems and who knows how many different ways of living, how many different systems that between now this generation and seven gen six generations from now, how many iterations and how many different systems are going to try. And, you know, one might work and one might not, and they have to go back to the drawing board. Like I'm excited to see even that process. I would love to have a bird's eye view of all of that, you know, six generations in so that the seventh generation can live their best lives, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, just getting away from nationalism, getting away from this idea of, you know, in this case, in the US, this idea of the American dream and, and, you know, living more communally, communally, is that a word? Living more in, 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 in communities where uh, we support one another, uh, where we share resources, we share uh, information, the right information, um, where we, yeah, we review the world as a, as, as, as part of us and not for us. Um, I think that's one thing that I've, that I've been, you know, really sharing with my students is that the world isn't for us and for our own gain. We are part of it and we need to learn how to how to recognize that and, and acknowledge that and, and, and put that in the work that we do. And I'm hoping by seven generations from now, uh, we'll be able to, to, to get there. But, um, but yeah, living with the world and not on the world, I think, would be would be a really, uh, really cool nice. thing to see. Yeah, that's a good one living with the world and not on the world, because then it brings us back from the seven generations zoom out into the one step at a time, which is never too difficult. Right. I mm -hmm. so appreciate your time and I so appreciate your answers, Mark. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to make sure to link out all of your awesome work in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd love to share or any call to action, something you want to point at, maybe, maybe something you want to leave people with? Yeah, I mean, all the designers out there listening, you know, definitely join our community of climate designers. Uh, we, we feel like we need all hands on deck. Uh, it's going to be a top-down, bottom-up approach, and, and we feel designers are some of the best types of people to really put our attention towards these global, um, this, this global crisis and using your creativity, using your amazing uh, design skills, using the, your ability to ask important questions, all the things that you have in your design toolkit can totally be helpful in addressing our climate crisis. So uh, definitely join our community. We're a global community and uh, we'd love to have you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.
Here we are. This is your host, Julian. Thanks for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, relationships, and business, and the way you show up as your best self for the world. Did you know that we just launched a participatory Patreon asking you for your contributions of content and gifting a monthly subscription to our shared mission? The Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, video interviews, and community is growing, and together we can make it count and carry big ripples. So go and check out the Patreon. It's linked out in the show notes of every episode. The Patreon for Green Planet, Blue Planet, and the community we're building together. Thanks for choosing to support with your time, money, or content. And that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, review the show, share it with a friend, spread the love, and have yourself a stellar day. All the best. Mm-hmm.